If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Cause we're all somewhere in the middle. We're all just looking for love to change the world. Ah. And we're all here in it together. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the January 13th, 2020 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine, the world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender radio show, now including our queer and intersex communities, as well as our allies. Hello, I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Tonight, we revisit all three parts of Steve Pride's award-winning interview with American human rights activist, author, and lecturer, Cleve Jones. Jones joined the gay liberation movement in the early 1970s. He was mentored by pioneer LGBT activist Harvey Milk and worked in Milk's City Hall office as a student intern until Milk's assassination in 1978. For this segment, the category is Harvey Milk. He co-founded the San Francisco AIDS Foundation, which has grown into one of the largest and most influential people with AIDS advocacy organizations, and he conceived the Names Project AIDS Memorial Quilt as a celebration of the lives of people who have died of AIDS-related causes. But for Cleve Jones, his career as an activist began during the turbulent 1970s when he was befriended by pioneer gay rights leader Harvey Milk. Hi, I'm Cleve Jones. When did you know you were gay? I was aware of being different in a way that was related to gender and sexuality probably as early as second grade. I got picked on at a very early age, and I was called names that I didn't understand, and I didn't know what those names meant. I think I probably put it all together in my head when I was maybe 12 or 13 years old. My father was a psychologist. So there were textbooks in the house. I remember one day, probably 13 maybe, where a kid at school called me a homo. And I just flat out said, I don't know what that means. Why are you calling me that? What does that mean? And he said, you're a homosexual. And I didn't want to say that I didn't know what that meant, so I went and looked it up. And then I said, oh, that's what it is. And then in 1971, I read in Life magazine, uh, the Year in Review issue of 1971, had a story about the gay liberation movement. And finding that article was one of the single most important things that happened to me in my life because it was my first understanding that there were other people like me. So I think that my generation of LGBT folk were probably the last generation who as we approached adolescence, 
many of us simply did not know that there was anybody else on the entire planet that felt the way we felt. So it was a real epiphany for me to find out not only that other people like me existed, but that there was a movement and that it was a radical movement, part of the larger movement against war and racism that I had already embraced. And at what point did you move to San Francisco? Well, I graduated from high school in 1972. I came up to San Francisco that summer, fell in love with the city, went back to Phoenix, enrolled at Arizona State. I had free tuition there because my mom and dad both taught there. So I needed to take advantage of that if I could. But I couldn't focus on school, and uh, I gave it one semester, and then I hitchhiked back up to San Francisco in the spring of 73. It's hard enough to explain just being gay in the 70s. What was it like to be gay in the 70s in San Francisco? I came across the Bay Bridge one afternoon at 4 o'clock, and the fog was coming down off of Twin Peaks, and there was an old coffee uh, roasting place right at the foot of the Bay Bridge. So as you came into the city, you could smell the the fog and the coffee and the sea air and probably marijuana. And I'd never seen anything like that city. I grew up in the suburbs of Phoenix, a boring city built during the Eisenhower administration. And nothing prepared me for the density of it, the architecture of it, the drama of the views, the bay, the ocean, the hills, the Victorian buildings all up against each other, the glitter in the sidewalks. It was the most extraordinary thing, and I decided before I'd even finished crossing the bridge and landing in the city, I knew that I was going to be a San Franciscan. (laughs) Another thing that was so wonderful about that time for gay people is that it was all brand new. So I was one of thousands of gay kids that were pouring into the city, even before Harvey got elected. Um, In those days, when you were young, If you had any kind of dreams at all, you had to leave whatever your hometown was, unless you were from Manhattan or L.A. or San Francisco. And people chose which city they went to based on their interests. So if you were into serious theater or finance, you went to New York. If you were into pop culture, pop music, or if you wanted to dye your hair blonde, you went to L.A. The radicals and the poets and the revolutionaries went to San Francisco. So I, of course, went to San Francisco. And... Every day, more queer kids were arriving, and there was this kind of wonderful self-consciousness. You know, we knew that this had never happened before. You didn't have to be smart. You didn't have to be educated. You didn't have to be political to get that this thing hadn't happened before. So it was lovely. And if you were walking down the street in the middle of the financial district at noon and, and you saw another gay person and you recognized them as gay for whatever reason, you'd make eye contact and you'd smile and you'd say hello. <laughs> and you knew you had this in common, that you had both come here to this beautiful city from someplace else to be free and to be gay. So it was an incredibly exciting, romantic, kind of innocent time. And it's amazing how much has changed since then. Just, uh, I have to keep wrapping my brain around the reality of what 40 years really means. Uh, I wanted to write a letter to Harvey 
just about everything that had changed in our neighborhood. And I just thought this would, this would end up being a book. Yeah. Cleve Jones was portrayed by actor Emile Hirsch in Milk, director Gus Van Zandt's 2008 biopic of Harvey Milk. Hey! I like the way those pants fit. Where are you from, kid? Um, sorry, old man, not interested. Oh, where's home? Phoenix. Phoenix. Come here. Just come here a minute. I'm Harvey Milk. I'm running for supervisor. What's your name? Um, Cleve Jones. Cleve Jones. You're adorable. <laughs> we should we should get you over here and get you registered, Mr. Jones. Elections of any kind are bourgeois affectation. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Oh, what do you do, trick up on Polk Street? If I need the cash. But I'm a little bit more selective about my clients than you are. Okay, let me ask you one thing before you go back to work. What was it like to be a little queer in Phoenix? Did all the jocks beat you up in gym class? So how'd you really meet Harvey Milk? Well, the film, it doesn't really have the story right, but... I was political before I even got to San Francisco. In the film, it sort of makes it seem like Harvey was the one who turned me on to politics. I was always, my parents were political. They were anti-war activists. And um, I became aware of Harvey, I think, right away, because San Francisco is a city of very small, defined neighborhoods, and each neighborhood has its character. And Harvey, within months, I think, of arriving from New York, had established himself as uh, the principal character of the Eureka Valley neighborhood, as it was called then. And so I was aware of him. I didn't take him very seriously. He, at that point, still had long hair, had a real sort of hippie look, which appealed to me. But what made me mistrustful was that he was a small business owner. And, you know, to this day, I, I have issues with the merchants of Castro Street. And that kind of put me off. And I knew that he'd been a Republican. He'd been a, a stockbroker. Um, I remember one encounter where it wasn't clear to me if he was trying to recruit me or get me to go home with him. But I did tell him that he was too old for me, words that have since come back to haunt me with a vengeance. Uh, but he was very, very kind. And I was in the city for a couple of years, and I saved my money. And then in the spring of 1975, I hitchhiked to Montreal and went to Europe. And I spent most of 75, 76, and 77 hitchhiking around Europe and the Middle East. And I came back a couple of times. Uh, my grandfather passed away to come back for that. And I would encounter Harvey, and I wrote to him while I was traveling of um, just every encounter that I had with the emerging gay culture there, I would relay back. And then in 77, when I got back, John Briggs was taking up the Anita Bryant campaign, and we first heard the rumblings about what would become Proposition 6. And I immediately began organizing. I was going to San Francisco State, so I organized students a year and a half before the election. We were beginning to organize, and Harvey and I got closer during that time. And he was very kind to me. One of the scenes in the film that I love the most is almost a verbatim recreation of a conversation we had after I got dumped by a boyfriend that I was completely smitten with. And Harvey sat me down and gave me this little lecture about how I was going to have many lovers. <laughs> well, it was true. <laughs> well, guess what, Cleve Jones? 
What? You are gonna meet the most extraordinary man, the sexiest, funniest, brightest man. You're gonna meet so many of them, fall in love with so many of them, you won't know till the end of your life which ones were your greatest lovers and which were your greatest friends. Is that supposed to help? What was Harvey like? You said kind. What else? I think it's really important for people to understand that Harvey, in most respects, was an ordinary person. If you've seen the film, you've seen a pretty good depiction of him. I think Sean's portrayal is spot on. And all of the other old farts that were around there showed up for the filming. And we were constantly amazed at just how real it was. He could be, uh, he had a temper. His personal life was often in disarray. He was a terrible businessman. He was completely broke when he died. And in his life, he experienced, you know, a great many of the defeats and humiliations that most of us have to endure. So especially now that he's been immortalized by Hollywood, I think it's important for people to understand that he was an ordinary man. What was extraordinary about him was his ability to find common ground with all different kinds of people. And that was, I think, the most important lesson that I learned from him. I had already come out. I had already decided that I would be out always in every aspect of my life. But I hated straight people. Uh, I was very heterophobic. I did not want anything to do with straight people. If you had given me bricks and mortar, I would have built a wall around my neighborhood to keep straight people out because I was frightened of them. And being with Harvey, this gay Jew from New York, who in a matter of months won the heart of an entire city by being himself and by finding common ground, that was incredibly instructive to me. So to be with him, going to the bus stops in every different neighborhood, going to the senior citizens programs, going to the union halls, going to the neighborhood meetings, and to just watch him as he fearlessly approached everyone with that big grin and his hand extended and his whole story just spilling out of him, uh, it, it was amazing. I, it, it took away a lot of my fear. And when you lose the fear, of course, you very quickly lose the hatred as well. So, That's something we often overlook about Harvey Milk. He was not just a gay activist. He was a social activist as well. Yeah, and I think that's important for people to remember right now. I mean, one of my problems with my own community, my own people right now, is I feel that many of us have completely have forgotten uh, where we're from, what we stood for. I think some of us have forgotten, some of us have deliberately abandoned it, but uh, Harvey was, a, was part of the movement, the larger movement, the broader movement, the permanent movement for peace and for social justice. And uh, he was always trying to cross those boundaries. This has been a conversation with innovator, educator, activist, and my friend, Cleve Jones, about his friend, Harvey Milk. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening.
Don't go away. We'll be right back with more from Cleve Jones after this quick break. Dr. Howard Brown's Move, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Born in Peoria, Illinois in 1924, Howard Brown admitted to himself that he was gay while attending college. Questioning, however, he sought help from the head of the psychiatry department at Western Reserve Medical School in Cleveland. Brown was told that he could not possibly be gay because homosexuals don't become doctors. They become hairdressers. He was drafted and served as a medical corpsman during World War II. Once out, he earned a medical degree in 1948. Dogged by the psychiatric teaching of the time that homosexuals were inherently impaired and concerned about his own sexuality, Brown quit analysis and moved to New York City in 1954. There, he grounded himself in the medical field and became a well-respected member of the medical community and ultimately moved to Greenwich Village, just a few blocks away from the Stonewall Inn. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and is recorded at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia. It's read by volunteers like me. I'm Dan Roberts. Hello, I'm Billy Bean, Major League Baseball's Ambassador for Inclusion, and you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Now back to Steve Pride's conversation with Cleve Jones. For this segment, the category is the AIDS epidemic. From the highs of the 1970s gay revolution to the lows of the mid-1980s when many of his friends were dying of a mysterious disease. From being near death himself to being granted a reprieve with the invention of the triple cocktail. Cleve Jones has experienced the emotional roller coaster of life as a political activist and HIV-positive gay man. Hi, this is Cleve Jones. Cleve, your friend and mentor, Harvey Milk, was assassinated right after Thanksgiving in 1978, a dark time. But just a couple years later, things went from bad to worse. Let's talk about the 1980s. Let's talk about AIDS. Well, I first heard about it 30 years ago. I was working in the state assembly as a consultant to the Democratic Caucus. I was assigned to the health committee. I didn't know anything about it. So I subscribed to every public health journal that I could find. And one of them was the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, the MMWR, published by the Centers for Disease Control. And uh, 30 years ago, on uh, I think it was June 3rd, Fifth, if I'm not mistaken, 1981, were the first, I think, three paragraphs describing clusters of gay men who were suffering and dying from Kaposi's sarcoma and pneumocystis pneumonia. And I clipped that and put it on my bulletin board. I, I remember thinking when I read it that this was probably really bad news. And then... Um, I don't remember exactly, but I think within a few weeks, at the most within a couple of months, I got a call from Dr. Marcus Conant, who was a dermatologist at the University of California, San Francisco. And he invited me to come up to the hospital there to see this young man named Simon Guzman, who was in an isolation ward and uh, died the next day. And that was the first, uh, the first one I saw. And by 1985, it seemed that everyone I knew was dead or dying. I try to convey this to young people. I go to campuses all the time, and I I try to 
explain this to them and they don't get it. It's so frustrating. I mean, I think about like when in the 60s when I was little and I would see television programs or hear my parents speak about things that had happened 30 years before. Well, that was the Depression and then World War II. And for a kid growing up in the 60s, hearing about what happened in the 30s, well, it might as well have been the Jurassic period, you know, or the Middle Ages. It was just ancient history. I lived on Castro Street for 10 years before the epidemic, and then I lived there for the first 10 years of the epidemic. And I myself lived with the knowledge that I had the virus for 10 full years before effective treatment started. Um, Man, it was, it was just so hard, and I felt, um, I think we were all just so desperate to, to try to find any way we could to break through the hatefulness and the lies and the hysteria, and I came up with the, the quilt, and um, I think it worked, you know? I think it really did work. I think it really helped a lot. I know it helped. I know it helped a lot of people, not just in our country, but all over the world. It, it put a face where there had only been statistics. Um, it revealed the families we had created, and uh, I think it was really useful. I find it difficult to talk about. I, I, I just recently had a conversation with the woman who sewed the quilt together. She was the one who did all the work. I got all the credit. <laughs> but uh, Cindy McMullen, known as Gert to her friends, to this day is still sewing the quilt together. and repairing it and keeping it going. And we were talking and she said, um, you know, we cried every day for 10 years. And when she said that, I thought it was hyperbole at first, but then I, I realized, no, uh, we cried every single day for 10 years. And hospitals were filled to overflowing. It's just impossible for the new generation to understand. In another interview, you mentioned being so surrounded by death that you even saw someone die on the street. Yeah, right in front of the cafe floor, Market and Noe. He looked like an old man, and he collapsed as we got closer. We realized he was someone in his 20s. But I could tell you a story about every building on those first three blocks of Castro Street. I could this is where Simon died, this is where Billy died, this is where Henry committed suicide, this is where they found Luis, you know, a month after he died because no one was left to check on him. This is where George starved to death because he was too weak to shop and nobody brought him food. I mean, I could just... Uh, it was a very concentrated experience. And the, the night that I had the idea for the quilt was in uh, mid-November of 1985, and the headline in the San Francisco Chronicle that day... I was out putting up flyers reminding people of the annual candlelight tribute to Harvey Milk and George Moscone on November 27th. And there was a headline in the paper. We had stopped at the corner of Castro and Market to get a slice of pizza, and we're picking up the newspaper, and the headline said, A Thousand San Franciscans Dead from AIDS. Well, if you stand at Castro and Market and look three blocks east, three blocks west, three blocks north, and three blocks south, those first thousand who died all lived in that square. And there was no evidence. Beautifully restored Victorians, cafes, clubs, restaurants, you smell coffee and food, you hear music and laughter, but no evidence. I remember just be, you know, getting kind of enraged and saying to my, my buddy, you know, I wish if, if, you, if you gave me a bulldozer right now, I'd knock down these buildings. And maybe if people walked by here and saw a meadow with a thousand corpses rotting in the sun, they'd get what was happening. 
And, and if they were humans, they'd respond. They'd be compelled to. But it was like this invisible thing and no response and Reagan, you know, not even saying the word aloud. I think the estimate is that in my little neighborhood, which is really six blocks, we were losing about between 1,500 and 2,000 a year. And most abandoned, of course, by their families, their biological families. Not always, but mostly. Does the quilt continue to grow? I am unfortunately estranged from the Names Project Foundation. The quilt continues. I do not think it's growing much in this country, happily, because most people in this country, like myself, have access to medications that are keeping us alive. But one of the amazing things about the whole quilt experience was that I think most of us, I certainly thought of uh, quilting as a particularly American folk art. But there are similar traditions and cultures all over the world. So there are quilts that are still growing. There's a quilt in Cuba. There's a, in 2000, I got to go to South Africa and meet with our brothers and sisters there who are using an AIDS memorial quilt to educate young people. And uh, I actually got to meet Mandela while I was there, which was one of the high points of my life. Tell me about the last time it was displayed. The last time it was displayed was 96, and it covered the entire National Mall from the steps of the Capitol building to the Washington Monument. And uh, we had displayed the quilt there many times. Uh, first in 80, it was there in 87, 88, 89, 92. Uh, 90, uh, there were many, many displays, but that one was extraordinary for three reasons. It was enormous. And the president showed up, finally, a president of the United States and the first lady walked on the quilt with us. And I said to him, Mr. President, uh, oh, we, we got out on the quilt and, and um, it was almost completely silent. I was expecting people to heckle him, but it was almost completely silent. And finally, one woman shouted out, thank you for being the first president to see the quilt. And, and he looked at me and he said, I'm the first president to see the quilt. And I said, yeah. And he said, well, I saw it back when I was governor of Arkansas. And we walked him and the first lady around the quilt and they found panels for friends of theirs. We had selected a few that we were going to show them that we had found, you know, to draw them to it. But as we were taking them to those places, they found others. And then the other great thing was that that year, finally, there was hope for us who were already infected. And uh, I myself, in November of 94, I got into one of the first trials for the combination. So it was clear that there was finally some progress and some hope. People around the world still contract AIDS. People still die. It's still the sixth leading cause of death among people ages 25 to 44 in the United States. It's decimated parts of Africa. Yet, it's become much easier for the gay community to ignore. Yeah. I think we're all grateful that we're not reminded of it every day by watching people we love die, but we ought to be thinking about it every day because there are young people being infected every day. And a great many of these young people are being infected with strains of the virus that are already multi-drug resistant. 
There's only one way that that can happen, by the way, and that's when people who, like myself who obviously knew that they had the disease or they wouldn't be getting treated for it and wouldn't have thus acquired mutations of the virus. Uh, well, there's only one way that those mutated viruses show up in young people's bloodstreams, and it's because they're having unprotected sex with people who knew that they have AIDS. So the good news now is that those of us who are able to adhere to a treatment program and achieve an undetectable status, it appears pretty clear now that it is almost impossible for us to transmit the disease. So we need to be talking about it because there's a couple of steps to this. We have to continue the work that makes it safe enough for people to get tested and learn their status without fear of losing their job, losing their insurance, losing their friends, losing their family, all of those nightmare scenarios that are so real even today. So we have to, we have to make it possible for people to, to get tested and be encouraged to be tested. And then those who test positive need to be encouraged and we need to find the wherewithal and the, and the ability to cover it but to get those folks in treatment right away. There, I don't think there's any dispute anymore. Anyone who's infected needs to get treatment immediately before their immune system collapses and before they transmit it to other people. This has been a conversation with innovator, educator, activist, friend, Cleve Jones. Today, Cleve Jones is a labor organizer in San Francisco, and the memorial quilt remains a powerful visual reminder of the AIDS pandemic. More than 44,000 individual three by six foot panels, most commemorating the life of someone who's died of AIDS, have been sewn together by friends, lovers, and family members. Since 1987, over 14 million people have visited the quilt at thousands of displays worldwide. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Is it over yet? Has the crisis gone away? Is it finished now? Can we all return to play? Is it good for now? Are people still passing away? Can I relax a bit? We further the cause Is it over and done When will AIDS Finally leave us Alone Enough cannot be said About Cleve Jones and Harvey Milk And their impact on our history and our community. So give yourself the gift of learning if you don't know very much about these men. What a gift Steve Pride gave us in this interview with Cleve Jones. Both he and Harvey Milk had such a tremendous impact on our history and our community. Looking forward to that third part. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Dr. Brown's Prescription, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. U.S. physician and health administrator Dr. Howard Brown had had enough he was questioning the compromises he had made as a closeted gay man to advance his career. Encouraged by the activities of the Gay Activist Alliance, he made plans to publicly come out on October 3, 1973, in a speech to 600 physicians attending a human sexuality symposium. With the press notified in advance, the media was there in force, with news of the announcement appearing in the New York Times that morning. 
Richard Cross, the chairman of the symposium, had urged Brown on, hoping physicians would stop thinking of homosexuals as just hairdressers, interior decorators, and male nurses. Now describing himself as the most prominent open homosexual in the country, Brown announced the formation of the National Gay Task Force on October 15, 1973 at a press conference in New York City. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. It's recorded at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and it's read by volunteers like me. I'm Dan Roberts. Hello, I'm Stephen Fry. The great Oscar Wilde once said, the truth is rarely pure and never simple. That's why it's imperative that we stay informed. So pull up your ears. An excellent way to do this is by listening to Southern California's longest-running radio program for the gay and lesbian community, IMRU. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Now back to Steve Pride's conversation with Cleve Jones. In this final segment, the category is LGBT Today. A lifelong activist, Cleve Jones, worked for Harvey Milk in the 1970s, conceived the Names Project AIDS Memorial Quilt after co-founding the San Francisco AIDS Foundation in the 1980s and has fought for LGBT civil rights his entire life. Who better to reconcile the dreams of our community's past with the realities of our movement's future? Hi, this is Cleve Jones. What are the challenges you see going forward for the gay community? I believe that gay people, and probably transgender people as well, so let's just say I believe that LGBT folks will probably achieve equal protection under the law in my lifetime. I think that we will see it. I think that the sea change that is happening in the new generation makes it almost an inevitability. Now that doesn't mean we can rest, but I believe if we all keep pushing in, in the ways that we've been pushing, that we're going to achieve that goal of equal protection under the law. So then we look at what is our role? What do we do after we've succeeded in getting that acknowledgement from the government that we have the same rights as anyone else. And I would like to see much of that energy that has been focused on the political arena, focused on schools and police departments and combating the homophobic attitudes within the schools, within law enforcement. But also, I am gay, and being gay has been certainly a very important part of my life. But I will die if I do not have clean air to breathe. I will die if I don't have shelter. I will suffer greatly if the gap between the rich and the poor continues to <laughs> widen. I think that the whole world is facing such extraordinary challenges right now. We live in a time of really great peril. And I think gay people have a responsibility, like everyone else. But I do think that gay people are special in some ways. And those attributes that have made it so difficult to be an organizer in our community, the incredible differences between us, also can be a great strength. So my hope for our community and our movement as we move forward is that we will be the bridge builders, that because we exist in every color of skin, because we were raised in every type of family, 
that maybe we can be part of the process of uniting people to address the gravest issues that affect us all, of war, of poverty. And as I grow older, I really have come to believe that the greatest divide and the most destructive divide between us is not sexual orientation or, or gender or even race. It's class. It's about money and power and the new economy that we're living in that I think is going to create even greater misery and poverty for ordinary people all across the planet and leads us to make the most terrible, appalling, destructive decisions that destroy our environment and set us all up for a real nightmare. So I'm still gay and I'm still caring about gay people, but I'm putting my energies into the labor movement right now. I want to do whatever I can in the years that remain to me to help build power for working class people, gay and straight and black and brown and young and old. We need to reinvigorate the labor movement and we need to help all working class people understand that it matters who you fall in love with, it matters what color you are, but we are going to sink or swim together. Cleve, when I interviewed Russian activist Nikolai Alexeev, he spoke about the morphing of our gay advocacy organizations into massive nonprofits he called Gay Incorporated. And you and I have talked about this. Here in LA, one of the hardest working LGBT community organizers that we both know is Tanner Effinger, who's an unpaid activist. Meanwhile, paid advocates like Lori Jean at the Los Angeles Gay and Lesbian Center wear the activist mantle and pull down $400,000 a year. This is, I believe, you know, an inevitable historic process that groups that start out on the fringe with no money become uh, brought into the mainstream to some extent. But I don't feel any connection to those organizations anymore. I think they're all irrelevant. And I'm talking about almost all of them. I'll just go, and let me just go ahead and say this. I think that the last two years have been the most extraordinary two years in the history of our movement. I've never seen anything like what I have seen in the last two years. We have moved forward in a profound way. I don't give any credit for that to any of these established groups. Not Human Rights Campaign, not the Task Force, not uh, National Center for Lesbian Rights, not Lambda Legal. It's come from an insurgency. It's come from the kids in the street again, which I never thought I'd see happen again. It's come from people, individuals like Dan Savage. Uh, it's come from the kids taking their gay partners to the proms. It's an amazing time. But I'm very angry with some of these established groups. But I, I think sometimes people are picking on the wrong things. Um, However, I got to say, the salary issue, let me give you as an example the National Equality March. Every established national group in the country tried to stop it. They all attacked me. They attacked everybody who supported it. And a lot of others. Robin Tyler attacked it. I mean, it was probably the only time Robin Tyler and, Dave and uh, Joe Salmanese have agreed on something. But they both agreed that, you know, it was terribly wrong of me to call for this march. 
And uh, despite that, despite the fact that none of the established groups endorsed it, despite being trashed all over the country for it, 250,000 young queer people and their straight friends supporters showed up. And do you know what our total expense was? Everybody said, oh, you're going to spend millions of dollars. You're going to bankrupt the community. You're going to divert all these resources from these other fights. Our total budget for the National Equality March in 2009 was $154,000. And almost every penny of that went to porta-potties and a basic minimal stage and sound system. We had no office space. We had no printing. We had no salaries. You mentioned Tanner Effinger. He was one of our volunteers. He was working in a gay bar here in West Hollywood on weekends and then coming over to my house in Palm Springs to work without pay every day, week after week after week, for which he was trashed and ridiculed. One of the bloggers said he was uh, Cleve Jones's highly paid boy toy, which was really pretty insulting. He could do much better than me, <laughs> and he wasn't getting paid a cent. But we don't encourage that kind of, of activism. We don't. Just a reminder, I'm Steve Pride, and my guest tonight is Cleve Jones. Go on. But I got, I got bigger issues than how much these people get paid. Lori Jean, I remember seeing her on television after the Prop 8 defeat, in which she acknowledged that the campaign that she was largely responsible for had failed to reach communities of color and immigrants. Yet when the workers at the Century Plaza Hotel called for a boycott of the Century Plaza Hotel. Lori Jean declined repeated requests to meet with gay and lesbian workers at the Century Plaza and insisted on holding a fundraiser for the community center at that event. So I work for the Hotel Workers Union. That's who I work for. I'm, I'm in the labor movement. And I just thought this was astonishing that this woman whose decisions were at least partly responsible for a terrible defeat at the polls, an abysmally run campaign. Then when that campaign is over, she acknowledges that part of the mistake was an inability to reach out to people of color, to working class people. We all understand this, that we have failed. We've won over a great many white intellectuals and liberals. Now we need to do a little bit harder work and get into these minority communities and communities of faith and immigrant populations. So here's a struggle pitting ordinary working class people from in Los Angeles against giant corporations in a basic struggle for fair pay and safe working conditions and access to health care. Lori Jean won't meet with the LGBT workers and insists on violating the boycott. It enrages me. Human rights campaign gives Hyatt corporation, a 100% rating on their so-called corporate equality index. They say Hyatt's a great place to work. Well, Hyatt workers disagree, and that's why we've got boycotts in over a dozen Hyatt hotels in the United States and Canada. So this gets back to, to me the big issue, which is that our movement, the LGBT movement, is part of a larger movement, and we need to accept that history, celebrate, embrace that history, and understand that that is where the moral strength of our movement derives. We're part of a much bigger effort. And anything we've had to confront, I look at the AIDS pandemic, what happened to my generation of gay men, 80% of us did not survive. If you came out between 1970 and 1975, you were a gay man, 80% of us didn't make it. 
But that is just the tiniest fragment of the big picture that is the HIV horror show, you know? So we need to fight for our rights, but I really think that there's a great many of our leaders who once we win uh, marriage equality are just going to think everything's fine, and I don't. We've got a lot of challenges ahead of us, and I want us all to be part of that struggle because the perils ahead are really, really scary. And uh, it's so important that people pay attention right now and be smart and read their history and reach out to build coalitions. If we don't build coalitions, if we don't take this country back, I don't think we're going to have that opportunity again in the future. So what do you think Harvey Milk would think of the LGBT movement today? I believe, and I'm reasonably confident that Harvey would agree with this, that a movement that seeks only to advance the narrow interests of its own members is a shallow movement, and one that probably is destined to have little impact on the lives of actual people. The movements that really change lives, the movements that touch the hearts of millions of people, are those movements that find common ground and build struggles based on those commonalities rather than focusing on the differences. It's so ironic. If someone had told me in 1973 when I joined Gay Liberation, as we quaintly called it then, if you had told me that I would, in the year 2011, be fighting for the right to join the army and get married, I think I probably would have tried to date women. I mean, it just, there was this revolutionary potential to our movement that was very exciting to me. And, you know, now um, it's not so much. Uh, and I'm distressed by that. And I want young people in particular to understand that we're more than a market. We're not just some demographic subset for corporations to market products to. We are more than that. And one of the problems, though, is that we are so different from each other. Look at any other minority, and they have so much more to bind them together. Magnus Hirschfeld, the great German homosexual emancipation movement activist during the Weimar Republic, complained about this in 1927, saying that homosexuals have no sense of solidarity, that there's no group of people less disposed to organize together to fight for their own fundamental rights than homosexuals. So this has been a problem for a while. But joking aside, gay people are born into rich families and poor families. We're born into black and brown and white skins. We're born into families of Hindu faith or Muslim or Baptist or Catholic or Mormon or no faith at all. We're born into families of different political ideologies, different national backgrounds, different histories. So you look at, for example, the African-American community, and they share so much from the superficial attributes of their physical being to their shared history, the histories of their families, their faith, their culture, the music, everything. We're not like that. What we have in common is that we're different, and we're different in a way that has to do with gender and sexuality, and we're different in the ways that that difference has moved us internally, how we've responded to it. But whether people want to admit it or not, whether they like it or not, our movement grew out of the larger movement. Our movement grew out of the peace movement, the anti-war movement, the civil rights movement, the feminist movement. 
those are our roots. And if we shed that past, if we disregard that past, I believe we do so at great peril. And increasingly, I find that the community and its leadership, I find many of them to be self-absorbed, unconcerned about the larger issues. And part of it is the inexorable process of American capitalism that takes every revolutionary idea and turns it into a commodity. Any regrets? <laughs> you know, show me a 56-year-old man with no regrets, and I'll show you a man with amnesia. If I could go back and tell myself something... I wish I had understood when I was young how quickly people you love can be taken away from you. I, I always tell young people now to cherish the friendships that they make early in their lives, before they've accomplished anything, before they've become their full self. You know, those, those people that knew you before, hold on to those. I have so many regrets, but the only regrets I have that keep me awake at night are the people that I failed to tell I love them. You know, the, the ones that I, I thought, well, I don't need to see him today. I can wait. I can see him next week. There are too many of those. And uh, I've made so many mistakes, but those are the ones that really bother me. What are you proudest of? I'm proud that I'm still around. I'm proud that I still have a sense of humor. I am not jaded. I don't think I'm cynical. I'm realistic. I've been around, but I think I've avoided cynicism. I still fall in love. This has been a conversation with innovator, educator, activist, and friend, Cleve Jones. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Hey, we shall We shall overcome someday. Darling, in my heart, here We shall overcome And there's still time left for a last word. And tonight, that comes from another gay icon, Armistead Maupin. And it's Michael Mouse Tolliver's letter home from the book Tales of the City. Dear Mama, I'm sorry it's taken me so long to write. Every time I try to write you and Papa, I realize I'm not saying the things that are in my heart. That would be okay if I loved you any less than I do. But you are still my parents, and I am still your child. I have friends who think I'm foolish to write this letter. I hope they're wrong. I hope their doubts are based on parents who loved and trusted them less than mine do. I hope especially that you'll see this as an act of love on my part, a sign of my continuing need to share my life with you. I wouldn't have written, I guess, if you hadn't told me about your involvement in the Save Our Children campaign. 
That, more than anything, made it clear that my responsibility was to tell you the truth, that your own child is homosexual, and that I never needed saving from anything except the cruel and ignorant piety of people like Anita Bryant. I'm sorry, Mama. Not for what I am, but for how you must feel at this moment. I know what that feeling is, for I felt it for most of my life. Revulsion, shame, disbelief, rejection through fear of something I knew even as a child was as basic to my nature as the color of my eyes. No, Mama, I wasn't recruited. No seasonal homosexual ever served as my mentor. But you know what? I wish someone had. I wish someone older than me and wiser than the people in Orlando had taken me aside and said, You're all right, kid. You can grow up to be a doctor or a teacher just like anyone else. You're not crazy or sick or evil. You can succeed and be happy and find peace with friends, all kinds of friends who don't give a damn who you go to bed with. Most of all, though, you can love and be loved without hating yourself for it. But no one ever said that to me, Mama. I had to find it out on my own with the help of the city that has become my home. I know this may be hard for you to believe, but San Francisco is full of men and women, both straight and gay, who don't consider sexuality in measuring the worth of another human being. These aren't radicals or weirdos, Mama. They are shop clerks and bankers and little old ladies and people who nod and smile to you when you meet them on the bus. Their attitude is neither patronizing nor pitying, and their message is so simple. Yes, you are a person. Yes, I like you. Yes, it's all right for you to like me, too. I know what you're thinking now. You're asking yourself, what did we do wrong? How did we let this happen? Which one of us made him that way? I can't answer that, Mama. In the long run, I guess I really don't care. All I know is this. If you and Papa are responsible for the way I am, then I thank you with all my heart, for it's the light and the joy of my life. I know I can't tell you what it is to be gay, but I can tell you what it's not. It's not hiding behind words, Mama, like family and decency and Christianity. It's not fearing your body or the pleasures that God made for it. It's not judging your neighbor except when he's crass or unkind. Being gay has taught me tolerance, compassion, and humility. It has shown me the limitless possibilities of living. It has given me people whose passion and kindness and sensitivity have provided a constant source of strength. It has brought me into the family of man, Mama, and I like it here. I like it. There's not much else I can tell you except that I'm the same Michael you've always known. You just know me better now. I have never consciously done anything to hurt you. I never will. Please don't feel you have to answer this right away. It's enough for me to know that I no longer have to lie to the people who taught me to value the truth. Marianne sends her love. Everything is fine at 28 Barbary Lane. Your loving son, Michael. Well, that's the end of our show. We know you have choices on your radio dial and appreciate your spending time with us. Thank you. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, Rainbow Minute producers Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Find us online at imruradio.org 
and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. If you're a web designer, social media expert, or just interested in LGBTQI community affairs and would like to volunteer with IMRU, email volunteer at imruradio.org. Good night. You own capris like fancy cheese. You shop so much it's like you have a disease. No girlfriend since you were ten. All your Facebook friends are men. As soon as you walk in the room, we see it. Everyone knows you like dudes. Baby, that fierce little strut and those perfect brows. You work out six days a week and still weigh two pounds. You manscape your junk, so it ain't no doubt you don't know. Uh oh, you're a homosexual. If only you would admit you're gay. You could profess your love for Gaga and Britney. Even Obama says it's okay. You don't know. Uh oh, you're a homosexual. Uh oh, that makes you homosexual. So girl, come on, and prove me wrong You've been living in that closet for too long You can't deny, don't say you're bi If you had sex with a girl, you might not As soon as you walk in the room, we see it Everyone knows you like dudes Baby, that fierce little strut and those perfect brows You work out six days a week and still weigh two pounds You manscape your junk so it ain't no doubt You don't know, uh-oh, you're a homosexual If only you would admit you're gay You could profess your love for Gaga and Britney Even Obama says it's okay You don't know, uh-oh, you're a Baby, that fierce little strut and those perfect brows You work out six days a week and still weigh two pounds you manscape your junk, so it ain't no doubt. You don't know. You're a homosexual. Baby, that fierce little strut and those perfect brows. You work out six days a week and still weigh two pounds. You manscape your junk, so it ain't no doubt. You don't know. Oh, oh. You're a homosexual. If only you would admit you're gay. You could profess your love for Gaga and Britney. It's okay, you don't know Uh-oh, you're a homosexual Uh-oh, that makes you homosexual